Welcome to the inaugural Sidley Restructuring Podcast. We're excited to kick off our podcast series with a conversation with Sidley Restructuring partner Tom Califano and retired bankruptcy judge Harlan Hale. We look forward to sharing insightful and interesting perspectives from the restructuring community in the months to come. Hello and welcome to the inaugural Sidley Restructuring Podcast. This is Tom Califano. I am a partner in the restructuring group in Sidley's New York office. And I am very proud and we're very proud to have as our first guest on the podcast, retired bankruptcy judge Harlan Hale. Judge Hale has a very diverse and unique personal background, which, in my opinion, has added to his many skills as a practicing attorney and as a jurist. I personally have had the pleasure of appearing before him several times. Judge Hale was born in Natchez, Mississippi. He grew up in the small town of St. Joseph, Louisiana, where his father was a small cotton farmer. He attended Louisiana State University as an undergrad and law student, and I know he remains a loyal Tiger supporter. He has been married to Claire King since 1983 and has two sons, George and John Ben. I know he is a man of faith and has been a Sunday school teacher for 25 years and an elder in his church for over 10 years. Before being appointed to the United States Bankruptcy Court for the Northern District of Texas, he was a member of several law firms and most recently a member of the international firm Baker and McKenzie. While on the bench and currently, he serves as an adjunct professor at Southern Methodist University School of Law. He currently acts as a JAMS mediator. While on the bench, Judge Hale was recognized for his excellence as a jurist. He received the American Inns of Bankruptcy Distinguished Service Award in 2021, and in 2019, he received the William Norton Jr. Judicial Excellence Award, among other recognitions. As I said, it is our pleasure and our great honor to have Judge Hale with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Judge, you just completed a very distinguished term on the bankruptcy bench for the Northern District of Texas. What are your thoughts looking back on your some 20 years on the bench? One, I really liked it a lot and I still miss it a lot. But one of the things that I reflected on this summer was how much had happened over 20 years in our society and economy, I guess, as well as just practicing law and sitting as a judge, we completely modernized in some ways the practice of law, and especially during the pandemic. So I guess the last 20 years have been a time of a lot of changes. Thank you. Now, I know before you took the bench, you were a very accomplished practitioner. How was the transition from being a practicing attorney to taking the bench as a judge? I liked it. I visited with several of the sitting judges that I knew pretty well on transition. The thing that was hardest on me was I enjoyed the company of lawyers daily, either in my firm or outside the firm. And after you take the bench, you sort of, in a way, are out of everybody's mind. I was always available for lunch, but people quit asking me to go to lunch. I think they felt a little bit uncomfortable about that. And then some of my partners, I think, finally forgot I was over there at the courthouse. 
So it was sort of a little bit of isolating, a little bit of loneliness other than my good colleagues and my law clerks. As I say, I always enjoyed the company of lawyers and tried to attend all the things I could attend. But there became a more of a quietness. An example, when you're in a judge's chambers, your phone seldom rings. You know, when you're in law firm, it's constantly, somebody's constantly pulling at you to get a hold of you. So that part happened immediately, and I was just surprised about that. The other thing was a notorious timesheet doer. Each morning when I came in, I did my timesheets for the day before, and I recall the very first day, I think it was November 2, I went in, and I didn't have to do a timesheet. And I thought, wow, this this part of it is really good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people who would agree with you. Now, I went through the very background you have because I think it's, one, impressive, and two, interesting. How do you think your background, from the way you grew up and to your very deep faith, how do you think that influenced your time on the bench and how you presided over cases? I think it informs the whole process, really. I grew up in a very modest household, as you said. My father was a cotton farmer and my mother was a nurse, and we were very much middle or lower middle class in a small farming community. And I saw people in my town have financial difficulties, and I understood and could relate to people that came, individuals that came into my court with financial difficulties. On the faith part and just the overall personality part, I I think it just helps not so much on substance, but on process. I always went out of my way to try to be patient with people that had some problems. I told my staff many times that, uh, you know, the people that come in front of us every day have a bucket load of problems. And I hope that when they leave, they don't feel like they have one more having to deal with me during the hearing that, you know, just that, that process, that part of it was okay. Even though they may win or they may lose, at least I didn't add to their woes of the day is what one of my goals was. Thank you. Now, in your time on the bench, is there a case or two that stands out to you as you look back, whether it was a large, high-profile case or one we wouldn't know about that you really think back on? There's a couple. During my retirement process, I was asked a couple times about that, and I jokingly said it's like picking your children. You know, it's hard to, you better not pick your children. It might hurt somebody's feelings. But I had several cases that really stood out. I had a hospital district from a small town in North Texas, a town called Quana, and the hospital was the largest employer of this town of 3,200 people. In fact, Claire and I drove through the town going to Amarillo one time, and I just put my eyeballs on it. It's right in the middle of the town square. And the hospital district was in a Chapter 9, and it was contested the whole way. And at the confirmation hearing, Confirmation hearing was held in Dallas, which is about three hours away from Quana. And the citizens of Quana rented a Greyhound bus, and 50 people from Quana drove to Dallas to see if their hospital was going to stay open. And that just meant a lot to me. I, I think part of it was because I was a small-town boy, and I know what a hospital means in your parish. And that was a very telling thing on how important the process was. And then a lot of times you were in some of my bigger cases and the big cases worry you a lot. But to be honest with you, the little cases, the individual cases often made me wake up in the middle of the night, just sort of worried about 
people that were definitely of good faith that had fallen on hard times because of something beyond their control. They'd lost their job or they'd gotten sick and that sort of thing. And you just worry about how those people are going to make it. So I would sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and be thinking about them. I say that I spent a lot of time worrying about the bigger cases, but I lost a lot more sleep out of the individual cases, I think, over the long run. Yeah, I mean, I remember sitting in your courtroom waiting to be called while you'd have your Chapter 13 docket. And you are known, I think you know this, in the bar for showing compassion to the, a lot of compassion to individuals who came before you who were on hard times. And I've seen you treat those people with a lot of respect and sensitivity towards their hard times. I know that ever since they amended the code, they've made it difficult on the individual debtor. How were you able to balance that out, your compassion while still being bound by some of the more restrictive code provisions? We're paid to follow the law, but thankfully in some of these areas, the bankruptcy court still has quite a bit of discretion I probably exercise a lot of discretion on the stay motions, trying to give people at least an opportunity to hold on to their car or house, or at least a chance to do that. They might have to do some things. But ultimately, I swore I'd follow the law, so I I tried to follow the law. But again, on a closer question, I'm fairly certain after talking to some of my colleagues and the Chapter 13 trustee that I did err on giving people chances. (laughs) (laughs) So switching gears now, going to the other extreme, you presided over the NRA case, which was one of the most high-profile cases at the time, got a lot of national press. What was that experience like for you? That one was rough. I remember the day it got filed. I think it was January 15 of 2021, or right around then at least. And I had just been assigned a very large case the day before, which was a Thursday. Well, our system, it doesn't alternate or it didn't at the time. So you would, just because you got a big case on a Thursday did not mean you weren't going to get a big case on Friday. But I liked math and liked odds. I was thinking probably I wouldn't get the NRA case, probably be assigned to one of my two colleagues. And so there had not been a judge assignment by the time we all went home. And our clerk of court, who happens to be my former career law clerk, so I know him well, he couldn't wait to call me at home on Friday night to tell me that I'd been assigned the NRA case. Because that's, I think you know from seeing me in court, those kinds of cases are not necessarily the ones that I like to do because they're very high profile and very, very stressful. So we worked with the law clerks that very first weekend, just sort of looking at what the case was about and things like that. The nice thing about the NRA case was the lawyers I knew all of the lawyers that were mostly involved in the case, except for Greg Garman from Las Vegas, who I just became very, very fond of during the case. He was a very straight shooter and a wonderful lawyer. And the rest of the lawyers that were in there on a day-to-day basis were people that I'd worked with for over the years. And I commented on the record that two of them I think I've known for almost 40 years, which is a long time to know people. So I had a great deal of confidence that we weren't going to have unnecessary roughness in the case. But that's a case that maybe some judges like. I didn't particularly like it because it received some sort of coverage every day. So people were watching what we were doing every day. And really early into the case, I said on the record, I'm going to try not to read things about this case in the paper 
just there's so much of it, and y'all are all saying things about each other. But you couldn't avoid it sometimes. It was in the Dallas Morning News regularly, and it was on the ABI website and things like that. So we had me and then my two law clerks. Judge Larson loaned me one of her law clerks. We had three very talented law clerks and three law students, one from the North Texas Law School and two from SMU. That seven people were working on this case basically all the time. So when we weren't in the courtroom, there was something going on behind the scenes with a motion or some lingering advisement in NRA for from January until we ruled in May. And if you remember, it was also during the pandemic. And so we were having to do things by Zoom, which made things extra hard. And then there was just a lot of interest in the case. When we had hearings, we would often have 200 people on Zoom watching the hearing because it's a nationally known organization, a lot of members, a lot of interest in it. So I'd say overall, just physically and mentally, that was probably the hardest case that I worked on. The the issue presented was a fairly straightforward but hard bankruptcy issue over whether the filing itself was valid. And we spent a lot of time on that, a lot of hours. My law clerks, toward the end, almost lived at the courthouse. They would let me go home, but they would be up there to really late at night, and then they'd be back early the next morning because it was a time-sensitive case, too. We needed to get a ruling out. So we had the trial in April, 23 witnesses, 600 exhibits, almost every day, 20 lawyers representing different parties involved in it. So just really intensive, labor-intensive case, and we took the matter under advisement for two weeks. As I promised them I was going to try to get a ruling out in two weeks. I knew they were all waiting for that. It's going to say whether the case went forward or not. So we, I think, ruled in the middle part of May, and there were a lot of competing motions, a lot of competing positions, but it surprised us that no one appealed. So we were glad that after 10 days passed, we were done with the NRA case. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like a lot of work in a very compressed period of time. You know, Judge, as I noted in the introduction, you practiced for years, and now you were on the bench for 20 years. If there are any younger lawyers out there listening to this, Can you point to any strategies or ways of presentations that you thought were particularly effective for lawyers or that you particularly appreciated as a judge? There's a couple of things. One, and it's a shame, I guess we just don't have as many live hearings, so you don't see as many people live in the courtroom where you used to get to sit in and watch. But in your community, I know in my community, People know who the really good courtroom lawyers are in bankruptcy court. And if you get an opportunity to watch him or her present, it's almost like going back to school a little bit. And so I would definitely do that. I think bankruptcy court is a unique court in some ways because you know the judges and the judges know you. And so the chances in, say, even the United States District Court in the Northern District of Texas, for example, or state district court, which has way more judges there, running across the same judge or the same lawyers doesn't happen very often. But we see what I call the same cast of characters all the time. And so you want to remember that. Because you want the judge to remember you as being a reasonable truth teller all the time. Because you're going to be right back in front of that same judge again. 
and probably with either the same lawyer on your side or against you, but you're going to have the same group of lawyers that you're going to be working with. The other thing that just reminds me that the judges see everything in the courtroom and we notice things. And so the professionalism that you show to the other side and then the witnesses for the other side, those are the sorts of things that really stand out to a judge. If you're a bully, I have said at CLEs before, I don't like bullies. And so when I've seen one particular government lawyer just be a real bully to a pro se taxpayer, I thought, you know, I don't like that. (laughs) And that sort of stuck in my head the whole time whenever I would see this lawyer. So don't mark yourself for sure in a bad way. Mark yourself in a good way, I guess I would say. Okay, great. Now, are there any, I think you just touched on that a little bit, but Any particular strategies that you think are ineffective that you've seen people employ in the courtroom? Yeah, we don't see this out of the bankruptcy lawyers too much, but we for sure see it almost every day out of the non-bankruptcy lawyers. There is really no reason to make a jury speech to a bankruptcy judge. And I hear it a lot where people try to play to a passion, passionate argument and that sort of thing. But I hope I was this way, and I know my colleagues are, that those sorts of things really don't move us. So we're more facts and law and then overall case. So even though you may think something is terribly unfair, and I agree with you that some parts of the bankruptcy code really sound unfair, making a jury speech is just not going to be that effective. And so I would avoid those sorts of things. So I know you, and you probably do this in your role as a professor at SMU, but what advice would you have for a young lawyer starting out? What key things as they advance in their career that they should keep in mind? What do you tell your students? There's two things that I did that I think still are very helpful. I got As a very young lawyer, I got involved in CLE matters, and sometimes it was helping other people by writing papers, and sometimes it was being on panels, and finally I was able to speak there, and I think you develop an expertise and a network by doing that, and if you can do that, and it's actually fairly easy to do that because you start off by just being a helper, but eventually you become a speaker, I would definitely do that. The second thing, I think it actually applies not just in bankruptcy law, but in life. I would look out in the legal community pretty early on and see if you can find someone to be a mentor for you. And I would actually reach outside my law firm, though certainly in the law firm, that's a good thing, too, to have a mentor in the firm. But just someone outside the law firm that from time to time you can bounce things off. I know I have a lot of former students and I have a lot of younger lawyers that have appeared in my court from time to time that have felt free because I've said, you can call me anytime. I'll talk to you about any issue that's going on. Want to go to lunch, just talk about what was going on in their firm or in their life or things like that. And it, it just helps, I think, to have a person that you trust that has your interest at heart. So I would say they're two different things, but I would get involved in CLE to advance my professional career. And I would get involved or try to find a mentor that just can be a good coach for you. Okay. Now, flipping things to the other side, what would you see as the responsibility of some of the more senior restructuring folks, especially those on the debtor side, what would you see as their responsibility to the bankruptcy system and to maintaining the public's confidence in the system? 
You have so much to give, such a wealth of experience. You know, our code is actually not that old. And I tell that to my SMU students, and I tell them it's almost 50 years old. They go, no, that is old, Judge. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But in the big picture, you know, it's really not that old. And so we have people that have practiced literally under the code their entire lives. They've seen so many things. And I would go out of my way to not say something ugly about a judge, or I think it's fair to talk about opinions and things like that in a constructive way, but not to downplay the system itself, because I think, as I was hinting, the non-bankruptcy people, even in my own household, this is true, sometimes do not understand what we do. And so sometimes you can tell them what the ruling was, and it just baffles them. And so being constructive and positive about the bankruptcy system and the bankruptcy courts, I think it's something that's helpful instead of being critical of them, at least in a public way. And again, I think coming on judges' decisions, fair game. That's what we do for a living. Thank you. Now, you and I, I'm in the same category. We have been around through a lot of changes in the profession, a lot of changes in the way cases have been run, a lot of changes in the players in the cases. Are there any trends that you see in Chapter 11 cases now that particularly concern you about the future of the system? The only thing that, and it's a, it's a big thing, it seems like because of the debt structure maybe of It seems like our bankruptcy cases are a lot more complicated. There are just a myriad of issues that come up because, you know, you just don't have a secured creditor that made the loan and you're dealing with the banker that has kind of ridden through the workout process. You know, a lot of times this loan is now in the hands of someone else that may not have the same incentives to make a deal. So I don't think that's a good thing, by the way. It seems like the cases continue to get more complex. And we'll also say that bankruptcy lawyers are extraordinarily creative, and so plans have gotten more complicated. You know, lenders are are expecting to be released in plans, for example, and things like that, that, you know, 20 years ago, that probably was novel or at least more novel than it is now. And so you have some things that folks just have started to expect in cases, so complexity and high expectations from everyone. The abilities, though, you know, I'll have to say that folks that have done some of these cases, their abilities really impressed me. Now, I've had the pleasure of practicing a significant amount in the Northern District of Texas, even though I'm from New York. And to me, and I've, you know, I've been in front of judges all over the country, it seems that the judges of the Northern District Bankruptcy Court are particularly collegial. And first of all, am I right? But what do you attribute that to, and how do you think it helps the operation of the court? You are right. We are, everyone that's on the bench now, and then let's pretend we go backwards in time to right before June 1 when I was on the bench, that we were all in some way colleagues or friends, and Jernigan and Mullen were actually law partners. You know, he's in Fort Worth and she's in Dallas. So we were all friends I office in the same building that Judge Jernigan and Mullen officed in when we were wet behind the ears lawyers, so we've known each other for a long time. 
And that's not true in every district. Sometimes you have people that come out of the district or weren't bankruptcy lawyers. All of us also were bankruptcy lawyers, and that's also not true in some of the larger cities actually in the United States. What that means then is that we all felt free to just walk into each other's chambers and bounce a problem off that you might have about a case and feel free to do that. And the other thing, when something not very good was going on in your life, for example, I was sick, you recall a couple of years ago, I think you had a case pending. Judge Jernigan stepped in without a beat and just helped me out on a bind like that because not only are we professional colleagues and judges and you expect that sort of thing, but she's also a dear friend. She did not want me to worry about what was going on at the courthouse when I was at Baylor Hospital. So I'm glad you made that observation, Tom, because I'm, I'm actually proud of the collegiality that, that we have in the Northern District. Well, you know, I think, and anybody who practices with me know, I'm a big fan of the Northern District. Now, you were honored by your peers last year at the National Conference of Bankruptcy Judges, among the other honors that you received while you were on the bench. Can you just talk a little bit about how that felt to be honored by your peers like that? I was quite surprised, I will tell you that. The past honorees, Barbara Hauser, Mary Walrath, that type of bankruptcy judge, I have always described to them and behind their back as intergalactics. (laughs) 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 So I view, when I got noted that I'd gotten the Norton Award, I was quite surprised because I never, that was not on my radar screen at all. And then the American Inn Award last year at the NCBJ, again, same sort of thing. These are big shoes to fill or big judges to follow in my judgment. And I did not, do not put myself in the same category. I've done a lot of things for the bar and done a lot of things as a judge, but those are what I consider America's superstars. So to answer your question, uh, surprised and actually very proud. So was my family when I told them a little bit of the background of the awards. And they were really surprised, by the way, after I told them (laughs) Well, uh, you're being too modest because if you don't put yourself in that category, obviously your peers do. So congratulations once again. That was a well-deserved honor and a real honor. So obviously you've got a lot to offer still. So what's next for Judge Hale? Well, I talked to SMU before I retired because I know that someday they'll want an active judge to be in the spot. I've taught this class. It's hard to imagine. This is my 26th semester to teach this class, so I've taught it a long time. And it's uh, something I thoroughly enjoy. I just enjoy being around the younger students and being out on a law school campus. It's fun. So before I actually handed in my papers to the Fifth Circuit, I wanted to make sure that SMU would keep me on at least for a few years. And they said I could stay on for a while. They said, you stay on as long as you want to, but I, I don't think that they mean that. But So my plans are to keep teaching for at least a few more years. It's something that I teach on Monday and Wednesday nights in the fall, and in the spring I teach in the morning, so that. And then out of the blue, Joan Feeney, who's a retired bankruptcy judge from Boston, called me about a year before I retired and asked if I wanted to talk to the JAMS group. That's a nationally known ADR group that I had mediated with as a lawyer and had thought a lot of. And at that time, I really wasn't thinking about doing anything other than teaching but I told her if I was going to do mediating, which I enjoy doing for my colleagues, I've, that's an organization I would like to work with. And so 
took a while. We talked back and forth for a while because I made sure that they understood I definitely didn't want to work full time. As I told them, if I wanted to work real hard, I would have just stayed where I was. <laughs> so we reached an agreement on sort of the pace of doing the mediations. And, and so far, I've been working with JAM since September 1. I have really enjoyed it. I've done five mediations so far, and I have one this week, toward the end of the week. And they've been bankruptcy mediations, a lot of times kind of figuring out the terms and conditions of a plan. And I've known almost all the lawyers that have come through the mediation, so I've enjoyed that. So my intentions would be to mediate at that sort of pace every week to 10 days, do a mediation if one's available. I'm not going to mediate every single day, but at a pace where I can get ready for the mediation and maybe do the case some good. And we've been able to resolve a couple of cases that some of my former colleagues had spent quite a bit of time on, so I feel good about removing that from their dockets. So I guess that's a long-winded answer. My intentions are to teach for a few more years and then to mediate at a nice pace. And Jam seems to think that that works for them. And they've been very nice to me so far. That's great. That's great to hear. Before we close, is there anything that you would like to say or anything that I didn't touch on that you'd like to relate to our audience? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question, too. As I was saying, when I was transitioning, the thing that I really missed was my interaction with lawyers. And you are one of those that I just so enjoyed having in court. You had some of my bigger, more complicated cases that you had helicopter case, which was awfully interesting, and then a few healthcare cases. Now, I teased you that you like being down the hall in Jernigan's court, and you like being in mine. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I really enjoyed you and the members of your firm a lot, and it challenged me a lot. So I guess the good lawyers like you that appeared in our court just uh, really made my time on the bench very meaningful, and I appreciate that. I appreciate you, and as I mentioned, the NRA lawyers that also did a very nice job. Those are just examples, though, of people that have been through my court over the 20 years that made me really like going in there. I like to say it's sort of like at your own home where there's some kids that come into the house and you go, oh, golly, they're back. And then there's some kids that come in the house and you go, wow, I'm glad you brought them, you know. And so you were one of the kids that I like coming into my house, Tom. So I just want you to know that. Well, thank you very much, Judge. I, I really appreciate it. I think it's because I provided you some comic relief at times. <laughs> well, Thank you very much for your time, Judge. This was great, and we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. And we couldn't think of a better guest to have for our initial podcast. So once again, thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to Tom Califano and Judge Harlan Hale on the Sidley Restructuring Podcast. Thank you for joining us. For more information about upcoming Sidley Restructuring Podcast episodes, And for more on Sidley's restructuring team, please visit sidley.com.